Thanks so much for, for being here uh, at Yogaville and you're in the midst of uh, a teacher training. That's right. Yeah. And you, you split your yin yoga into a few modules? That's right. We have three training modules um, that, that uh, start with the more the basic concepts of yin, the anatomy, the energetic aspects, the emotional aspects. Then we move more into what it really means to be a teacher and to mm. deepen us in our teaching. And those are the second and third modules. Hmm. So I wanted to ask you, uh, just personally, why do you teach? Because it's my practice, really. And I realize that, um, that when I'm teaching is when I'm most engaged with who I am. When I feel like I'm my, my best self is when I'm teaching. So uh, it's really my, my uh, spiritual practice and I don't like the students to know that because of course they're paying. <laughs> but uh, that's really what it comes down to. Uh, it's, it's necessary for me as a practice. Isn't it interesting too that I think uh, maybe sometimes we, we have an odd relationship with getting rewarded or a payment in the case yeah. for something that we really enjoy. Like, this is my practice, this is what I'm meant to be doing, and I'm also receiving, you know, compensation for it. It actually isn't coming to me. So that relieves some of that uh, yeah, difficulty, but, right? But it goes even deeper because I was just listening um, to you discuss this project with the Tibetan refugees, and uh, someone who was interviewing you complimented you on, oh, isn't this work that you're doing so great? And your response was, I get back from it more than I'm even giving. So the, again, it's like, um, and it's Swami Satchidananda emphasizes service so much because it gives back, you know, to us. I think that that was maybe the point that you're, you're making, feel free to clarify. Um, but, you know, what, what should not be an act of service? I guess, like, does that not even benefit you even more? The fact that the earnings that you make now go and do, do something else and maybe that fills up your heart even more. Yeah, there are certainly def different levels of it. In one level, um, for me to be helping the Tibetan people and Tibetan children and some of their families uh, is, it, uh, feels good. And at the same time, I know that there are Tibetans who are praying for me every day and what that's worth way more than anything I could give them. The, the idea that someone every morning is praying for you and caring about you is a gift way beyond what I, I am able to give. And I also believe that service, service is really one of the ways that we uh, move towards acceptance. And, um, and that's really what my practice is about. My experience with people I've worked with is that what we're looking for and what my students are looking for in their life isn't looser hamstrings. It, when everything else is said and done, it's really about self-love and self-acceptance. And it feels to me as though our societies, our modern societies, put so much pressure on us to not accept ourselves, to need to be different, to need to have different clothes, a different car, whatever it is, a different yoga posture. 
And that pressure, it, it drives us away from our own self-acceptance. And the practice of yin is a very powerful practice in that way, I believe. Partly at a cellular level, because I know, I believe, and I, I, I know from my own experience, that much of our trauma, especially around self-acceptance, is held in the cells of the body, and particularly in the deep connective tissue of the body. And in this practice of yin, it's, it's a practice of, of opening to that deep connective tissue and about quietly listening deeply to the stories that the tissue is holding. Mm -hmm. And only until we can really listen to those stories can we begin to, to heal around the stories that are serving us. So in that regard, um, uh, the, the practice helps us move towards acceptance. But this, the practice of, self, of service uh, is a way also of, of removing ourselves from, from uh, the intention of everything being about us. And instead, when we turn our intention in our practice and our life to something outside ourselves, those lines between ourselves and others begin to soften. And, and we begin to accept others, and because those lines are softening between us and others, that acceptance comes back also to us. And that's what I found in my life, those times when I've been put in a place where I thought I could not, not accept what was happening to me. I found myself throwing myself more deeply into service, and through that I, I felt slowly that return to a place of, where I could accept what was happening in my life, and because of that, I could accept, accept myself as I am within that story that's unfolding. Mm -hmm. I just want to sit with that for that's a. Mm. This uh, acceptance of the self. I also wanted to ask you about children, because I think children. It's totally natural. They're, to not accept the self is kind of, uh, they don't even understand it. What do you mean to not accept that? This is just how I am. And then that allows me to, to move forward. Um, so it seems that if we're constantly searching for self-acceptance, this is a barrier toward anything that we want to do uh, in our lives that accepting the self is actually the foundation for whatever else we want to do. First, and maybe again and again, we need to reaffirm, okay, I'm a human being. I was born into this situation, into this being. I can accept that um, and, and I can move forward. But my question is, is how does that, how does that get kind of driven from us, this acceptance? Because it's natural when you're a child and then all of a sudden, you know, it's not there anymore. And how does that trend? And, and, and all of a sudden now we're living lives where we're, we're feeling empty and we're, we're constantly seekers to, to fill ourselves up. Mm -hmm. Right. So how, how is that happening? And then, you know, how do we bring ourselves back to the place of, of acceptance? Well, I think that, that, it feels to me that this is really kind of the epidemic and epidemic of our time. Mm. And I, not to get into historical, political too much, here we are at Yogaville, but 
Uh, I think since the Industrial Revolution and the fact that all of a sudden they were making more shirts than people needed, they had to, somebody had to convince somebody, people that they needed another shirt in order to sell it. And so that's become what all this pressure uh, against us to, to be something else. Because if we're at peace with who we are, we don't need to bring in these external, uh, like the new car and the flashy clothes, all those things, trying to uh, establish some identity for ourselves because we've lost uh, the, the essence of our own identity. And I think you're very right that um, this, this isn't natural for children. It's, they see their life very differently. And I'm very fortunate I have a, a teacher and she turns five next year. And uh, this year, uh, or two years ago when she was two, uh, I was sitting with her quietly and we were sitting on the sofa and uh, as usual, she had no clothes on at that time. She was, would immediately take her clothes off at any, at any possibility. So we're sitting together uh, uh, quietly and I could tell she was thinking about something because her brow became furrowed. And, and she looked at me, she said, Biff, and she starts that way when she has something serious. Yeah. <laughs> it's time for me to stop having OM. And OM is what she referred to as nursing. Mm -hmm. So she was saying, it's time for me to stop nursing. She said, it's time for me to stop having OM. It's time for me to grow up. And then she thought, and I was quiet because I knew she was thinking. She said, but I like this. And she indicated her body. In other words, who she was. I, I like who I am. I like this, she said. And uh, she, we sat for a little while, quiet still, and she said, Biff, there's a mystery here, and I'm going to figure out what it is. Mm. And she got down off the sofa and went outside. Well, of course, when your teacher says something so, so deep as that, you have to sit with it, and I did. And uh, a year or so went by. And this year, I was leaving to teach in Europe in the spring. And she, came, and she came up to me and she said, Biff, would you like to have a town in your heart? Your, um, excuse me, she said, would you like to have your own town? And I said, well, that sounds nice. And she said, well, you have one in your heart already. And if anybody tells you to do something you don't want to do, or if any time something is too difficult for you, you can go back to the town in your heart. And I said, thank you, of course, as you do to your teacher. And off I went to Europe. And, and I chose to share that story. Uh, and, you know, we should pass down the teachings of our mm. teacher. So I chose to share that with the circle. And uh, they, they took it in and they started referring to it as their town in their heart and things. And I wrote to her mother an email. And I told her that I had told that story. And she told my granddaughter, Osman. And Asma said, make sure you tell him the most important part. And she said, what is it? She said, tell him that you have to sing your own heart song to find your way back to the town in your heart. And that's, that's from a four-year-old, that, that um, understanding before all this stuff comes in. So uh, I'm, I'm trying to sing my own heart song to always remember the way back to the town in my heart. Hmm. Singing our own heart song. I've heard you speak about a ladder 
uh, I think Joseph Campbell says something about, you know, we're trying to climb a ladder and you're climbing it. And, and then you realize that you set, set up the ladder in the wrong place. I think he said you get to the top of the ladder and you find out it's up, it's up against the wrong wall. It's up against the wrong yeah. wall. So I relate that to what you're sharing now of, of, of singing your heart song, right? It's that the heart song is what wall you're putting the ladder up against and also related to stories. Mm -hmm. um, so first question is, is it inevitable for human beings to create stories? And then the second part to it is, do you find that it's important to reassess what stories you've created and kind of check in, is this still my heart, is this story still my heart song? Or do I have a new heart song? Do I have a different wall that I want to put the ladder up against? Because, right, sometimes we need, and, and we, sometimes we reflect and we say, okay, that's still the wall that I want to, to be, you know, putting my ladder against. And sometimes it's like, no, it's a, it's a different wall. I have a different, you know, heart song. Um, and is that what you're doing in yin yoga too, having people kind of check in with their hearts and, and question, you know, what are, what was the past heart song and is that my current heart song? Well, it's interesting you should say that today in class, as I, when I leave here, we'll be talking about the visionary archetype. And that, of course, is an archetype that, ha that invites us to, to, um, to ask the question, what, why did I decide to walk this earth? What is my medicine? Uh, what, what is my passion? Uh, so I think it, it is part of all of, I think all the practices are to, to check in and see uh, where we are within our story. But the, the first part of your question, do we, is it necessary to have story or, um, and I think we don't live, we can't live with outside story. Now, if we look at the Heart Sutra, the teaching of the Buddha and Avalokiteshvara, when he was asked the question, essentially, how do we be who we can be, um, our deepest self, he said the first thing to understand is that there is no inherent reality. And what he mean, meant, as far as I can understand it, is that nothing exists in our life, nothing exists outside stories. The whole cosmos is one unfolding story. And the only way we can see our place in the world or the cosmos is in relation to the story that's unfolding around us. And a lot of my work, the second and the third module, is really about that. And it's about returning to the traditions of the storyteller and the indigenous nature traditions that, look, that we're able to walk in the spring and see the story of, of new birth and the story of reincarnation and, and to walk through the woods in the fall and see the stories of impermanence and the stories of letting go. And as the leaves drop, they can see that it's time to, sometimes it's time to let go. Mm. And the spring, as the crocus has come up, we see, well, now is the time for rebirth. So, a lot of my work is around, uh, it's either around the indigenous archetypes of the warrior, the healer, the teacher, and the visionary, or around the archetypes of the youth, midlife, and elder stories, which is the third module, which is around storytelling and yin yoga. 
And it's just about that. It's about can we see the stories that unfold around us? Can we see deeply the stories of our students rather than seeing them through the, the reflection of our own experience and our own desires? Can we really make a place for our students to find their own story rather than pushing our story on them? Um, so that's... Uh, I think that we live, we, we must live within story and we must learn to listen to the stories. And the stories that we don't listen to within us are the stories that we'll keep repeating and repeating. So it's like a small child pulling on the hem of your, of your um, pants in the supermarket and until you turn and, and, and listen to that story, that story will repeat itself over and over. And that's what I found so important, in, especially in the third module around storytelling. That willingness to, to really listen to our own stories, not through uh, the, the lens of what we think they should be, but what they really are. Yeah, and, and is there this tendency to kind of run away from even looking at what it is? And is an obstacle in a way speed? and the speed maybe of uh, the collective story or the collective culture that's happening right now where everything's moving so fast. And so it seems to me that you, you need to even slow down to ask the question and to look and see what is, what is, what is my story. So, you know, the process of being able to do that, do you have any recommendations for, you know, how to kind of gently transition maybe to a slower speed than uh, in order to look and see what, what what's my story? What are the stories I've been telling myself? Well, of course, that's, it isn't that, well, I shouldn't say it, put it that way. For me, that is the essence of meditation, to let those things that have blocked us from seeing the clarity and truth of our story slowly settle. The yin yoga is a different, uh, a, a little bit different in that it's involving the body. And uh, I believe that, uh, as I've said, as I think I said earlier, that uh, not only does the mind carry the stories, but the body carries the stories as well. And particularly in these deep places of connective tissue in the body. So although yin yoga um, is seen quite differently from teacher to teacher, and um, I, I teach from the, from the Jamse school of, of yin yoga, which has in itself a, a, its own, has in itself a philosophy. And that really is, is uh, uh, that philosophy is really about what lies at the essence of that yin archetype. And for me, that what lies at the essence there is the place of unconditional acceptance. The, the, the archetype of the mother herself lies at the, for me, at the center of that yin archetype. And when we open to that archetype of unconditional love, unconditional acceptance, and at the same time, we bring our body into these postures where these, these uh, deep connective tissues are asked to open, particularly in the external rotations or what we call the hip openers, those type of postures, those places where that trauma is held and also the healing is held. As we open to those places and we just sit and we listen and we accept and, and we um, bring compassion there, those stories are able to be heard in a different way and be able to be released. And that's been my experience over and over in this practice. 
uh, such healing quality in being able to listen and to be able to, to de hear deeply these stories. And of course, healing is not repairing. Uh, yin yoga is for me an elder practice, which means it's a practice that, that's there when, uh, when ultimately you can't change the things you want to change. The youth practices, maybe the very active practices, which are about the muscles, those are practices that are designed to change something, to make you stronger and more flexible. And all that's wonderful. But as we move through our life, through our youth, midlife, and elder stories, we reach at some point, whether it's when we're two years old or 102 years old, we face something that we can't change, a death. Uh, a, a disease, and for me, that's what the, where the practice of yoga really is. Um, so these elder practices are, are not about transformation; they're about transcendence. So although a Yin Yoga is has great number of benefits physically, uh, for me, the essence of it is how can it help us emotionally uh, hear the stories uh, in our life and accept what hap what comes to us whether it's good or bad. Hmm. Again, to me, it seems that there's, there's some type of obstacle in accepting the reality of, of nature or something is, is taught that isn't necessarily natural which prevents us from accepting maybe more difficult things. Um, you know, nature itself is, can be brutal, I guess you could say, or even just death, right? Uh, we treat death as if it's, you know, a really sad thing. Um, and I'm not so sure if that's, is that the way that you, that you look at death? Like it's, um, like it's a travesty almost what happens or is it possible? And is that inevitable to look at death like that? Or is it possible to kind of shift our relationship with things and kind of be more rooted in accepting what we can't change? Right. And so it seems you, you describe this as being like a practice for the elders. But again, I related to a child. And if we explain to children, a, a child, Hey, this is how nature is. You don't know how long, you know, you're, you're going to have. And I think also our, our culture, you know, tends to speak, um, as if we can predict the future, you know, when I'm this age or when I am married, when I have children, those types, when, when you grow older. And do you feel that that serves us to, to speak like that as if things are more permanent than they actually are? And does this create suffering because it's not in alignment with, with nature? The alignment with nature is, we don't know if tomorrow's gonna be here or not, right? Well, it certainly causes suffering, I think. Uh, I wanna go back to how you began uh, that. Um, it's not a practice for elders, it's an elder practice. Mm. And that, that it, there's no relationship, to chronological relationship to elder and age. Mm. Some people are, enter that place of elderhood very early in their life where they where, where things have happened that they could can't transform that they need to transcend 
And then many people, uh, unfortunately, I see today, many people, especially in charge of things, seem to never be able to get out of the youth story, which is always the, the idea of, uh, of triumphing over something or being better or being bigger. Than, and this we need in our youth, but uh, hopefully we begin to transform that. But from my point of view, because I understand or I, I feel deeply the relationship of yin and yang as I do the relationship of warrior healer, teacher and visionary, I feel them very much as, as part of my being. I understand that yin can't exist without yang, and yang can't exist without yin. They create each other, they control each other, they are because of each other. The same way, of course, you and I are only here because of each other. I know, of course, life is here only because of death, and death because of life. And I, under, I, I feel that cycle. Um, and so I don't personally feel uh, death in itself as a bad thing. Uh, or uh, it's certainly a necessary part of, of renewal. We see it every, every fall as we go into winter. Of course, without the winter and the fall, we wouldn't have the spring. That's certainly clear. My, the, the problem that, that, or the challenge that I have is not my own death, but what my death, how my death would, will affect some, the people around me. And that's where my grieving and my, my um, uh, clinging still is. Uh, I, and it's my work. And, and I realize that um, I know what I can give to the people I love when I'm alive. I really don't know what the gift of my death is. And I know that uh, uh, at a certain level. Nonetheless, I, I also know that the pain that my passing can, will cause to the people who love me. And that makes me sad. So that's, there's, there's my work. It's not really around my, and of course that's easy to say because I'm, I'm relatively healthy. So to say I'm not, scared, I'm not scared of death, maybe just I haven't been to a place where I was scared of death. But is the work even there in the accepting our limitations of, of knowing as humans? So I often think about like, humans are capable of knowing, understanding so much. I think it's amazing the amount of truth that we can uncover. At the same time, isn't the truth too that we have no idea, that we don't know that, so for example, you know, the, what you shared, um, you know, that my death is gonna cause suffering for, for someone else. But maybe that suffering will then lead to more joy for them than they've ever experienced before and more growth. Or we think we know that, okay, that suffering is bad, but we don't know. And is this humility uh, an essential story that we need to remind ourselves of um, in order to find more acceptance that I don't know? Uh, yes, I think it's helpful. And I, and I agree with everything you say at, 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 the, at a mental level. But at the same time, I, I have the feeling, uh, no matter whether it's good, would be good for someone who loved me to suffer or not, it still hurts me. Mm. But what I can accept is that part of myself, which holds on to that and is mm. 
and feel sad because of that because it's coming from from love and all so i don't beat myself up about it it my life would be easier if it, if it wasn't there but my life would be easier if i didn't love so many people and so many people didn't love me um, but that's the way it is it, uh, thank you for bringing up this point because i think it's so important is it, in terms of our growth um though i think you know it's very helpful for us to uh, be gentle with where we're at. Okay, this is where I'm at. That's okay. That acceptance is the whole, the whole arena, mm-hmm. right? Um, okay, I've gone through like this traumatic experience, or I feel this way about. It. That's okay. It's right. That's okay too. And that's okay again. Well, yeah. Whatever it is, if, even if I don't go to that place, that's okay too. Exactly. I often have students say, "We have. I just can't accept this." I said, well, can you accept that you can't accept it? <laughs> they said, well, not really. Well, can you accept that you can't accept it? You've got to get back, way back and get a running start on it. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think that's um, that, the, whole, the whole issue of, of acceptance is, um, is wrapped in, in its own issues of acceptance same time and one of my I have a few personal I, you could call them mantras but things that seem to make sense to me and one of them is I'm not perfect but I'm good enough and that's perfect mm. and, um, and and that's what I feel like okay I'm I, I have these emotions I, I'm, I'm it, they're disturbing me that that's maybe it's not perfect but it's I'm a human being and that in itself is is perfect has right. its own perfection right it seems like turning towards this instead of like running away or hiding from it exactly. makes all the difference. Yeah. I love what Suzuki Roshi said to his students. Uh, you're all perfect just the way you are and you could use a little work. Right. This balance, what is this balance all about? So it's, you know, like gentle determination or trying softer. Yeah. These, these types of things, which I think, you know, for me, they just open up the heart. Because this yeah. is exactly, I'm accepting where it's all okay. And that process of doing that all of a sudden leads to so much more growth. So I want to grow, but it's, it's not this like rigid growth. It's more of this uh, maybe being connected to the, the overall story of everything, feeling oneness. Uh, often I, I talk a lot about acceptance around the work. And, and I sometimes get feedback, and not directly from my students, but from others that say, well, that's just passivity. That, you're just being passive. You're not going to get anywhere. And passivity, of course, is a shadow side of acceptance. Acceptance has nothing to do with effort. Uh, it, it only has to do with, it, with our intention, really. So... Um, I think what you what you say is is very important. The shadow side is is interesting because we can really be affected by that. Even going back to one of the first things you said about meditation or prayer, that uh, you know the the fact that there are people praying for you is is very valuable. So there, the the shadow side of that can be a similar thing. So what what is that prayer or meditation? So. Do I believe that meditating is valuable, both for me and outside? So what is your belief in terms of, you know, the, the self in relationship to others? Or does what happens inside here end at the layers of my skin? Or do my vibrations go out and affect 
the rest of the world around me. Because if that's the case, then meditating and prayer is very effective. But I think that's a, maybe that's a growing understanding, but not necessarily very common today, where people often say, what, what's your meditation gonna do? What's your prayers gonna do? It's as if it's this understanding or this belief that, um, like I said, the vibrations don't expand from, from the self, that they end yeah. at the layers of the skin. Well, I think this is the same uh, thing we so often hear people say around service, that you need to take care of yourself before you can take care of other people, drawing this line between self and others. Mm -hmm. And my experience and my belief is that um, really we need to be taking care of others and, and through that we will certainly take care of ourselves because obviously you can't take care of others without taking care of yourself to do it. But the, the subtle difference is that you're taking care of yourself in order to be of service. So why are we doing our practice? Are we doing it so we can stay in shape and so we can have fancy clothes or whatever? Or are we teaching so we can make money? Or are we doing these practices so, so that we can uh, be of service to others? And that, I think, is, is that difference. And, and of course, that's the flip side of what you're talking about, essentially. that, that um, that, that we need to lose that, that line between self and others. And, and that's what we've, part of what we've lost when, we, when our communities have become so scattered and we don't have a sense of community. Now here at Yogaville, it's very different. Here it feels like people understand that, that uh, their personal practice is around being present and uh, to, around being more present with people and being more of service to people. And that's one reason I so appreciate uh, that, that opportunity to be here when I am. I know the community really appreciates your presence too. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for, for taking the time. Uh, Pleasure. Yeah. Om Shanti.